I'm Charlie Gibson, and this is The Bookcase, the podcast that you seek out every week eagerly. And I don't think people know it, but we have, as you know, an extensive, extensive research department for this podcast. Huge. It is, well, it's kind of my computer and your computer. Oh, both of them. We look for different ways to welcome everybody uh, every week. And so, as the Japanese would say, I hope, (laughs) because I just looked it up, Yokoso, which is welcome. And as always, I'm going to apologize to the native speakers after we introduce a word of another language. So my apologies to native Japanese speakers everywhere. Today, we are talking to the amazing American institution, Nelson DeMille, one of the bestseller of bestsellers. He has 23 books in circulation and he sold over 50 million. So that's nothing to sneeze at. And his new one, which is the eighth John Corey mystery, is called The Maze. Yeah, it's an institution. And it's an interesting question with a mystery writer and a thriller writer, whether or not they want to be original in every single book they write, or when they glom onto a detective or a character that really strikes a chord with their audience, do they want to continue writing for that audience? There's a certain ease and facility in doing that because you presume some knowledge on the part of readers uh, that they know a little bit about. You don't have to do as much exposition. But then do they get tired of their own characters? To what extent do those characters come alive for them? John Corey is, um, well, I I don't think you'd describe him as politically correct, would you, Kate? No, you would not. I think you would describe him as an old school police detective. And, you know, the opening scene of this book, he's sitting on his porch in his house overlooking the whatever vacation blah, and he's thinking about all the assassins that are feet from him trying to kill him. If that isn't a great opener to a long-term detective book, I don't know what is. And the first one, which is my favorite Nelson's Mill book, the first John Corey book, Plum Island, because one of the things he talks about in this interview, which I hadn't really thought of, was the importance of atmosphere. Not a meticulous plotter. He rarely knows where he's going, but he is very specific about atmosphere. And Plum Island combines a medical sort of mystery island research novel with a pirate treasure hunt, which is so weird and you would think wouldn't work at all. And it really does. And it's really fun. And John Corey became this sort of great character that people wanted to follow. And so here we are. Wasn't Didn't Conan Doyle, by the way, keep trying to kill off Holmes? Holmes got on his nerves so much that he finally threw him off a waterfall. I think that was what the Reichenbach Falls was. Threw them off the cliff. Moriarty threw him off the cliff. People were so upset that he had to bring him back to life. It was a little bit about <laughs> Dallas. Remember <laughs> Dallas with the bringing its main character yes. back? Yes. I think it's worth a note to Conan Doyle. Maybe if he had decapitated him, he could have gotten away with it. (laughs) John Corey is an interesting character. As I say, probably wouldn't be very high on the politically correct list. But Nelson will tell you something very interesting about who are the greatest admirers of John Corey. Anyway, Nelson DeMille, as he says, I, I, I always debut at number three or four on the bestseller list. Sure enough, uh, he did with The Maze and he has with many others. All of his books are still in print. He is, as you say, an institution in thriller writing, in mystery writing. Also, he's a delightful conversationalist. So we had a chance to talk with him about his career and about The Maze, his latest John Corey novel. Nelson DeMille, a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. Do you even know how many books you have in circulation and how many you've written? Oh, well, uh, you know, the, the official figure is 50 million. I'll take it. <laughs> For circulation. And that 50 million copies sold represents how many different books? Do you know how many different books you have in, in circulation? Well, I'm on my 23rd book now. The Maze is my 23rd book, I believe. And 23 books written by Nelson DeMille and then a bunch of books written by other people who are you 
With pseudonyms. Yeah, I did use pseudonyms in the past. I think if I could advise, you know, young writers, uh, you know, start off with a pseudonym, you feel, uh, you feel more liberated, too. So the pseudonyms, the pen names, in some ways, they were costumes, they were masks. That was your sort of philosophy behind them? Yeah, but also in those days, I was writing paperback originals before my big hardcover. The genres had to have different names because I was all off of the place trying to make a living. They're paying me $2,000 a book, and... I wrote a couple of mysteries, and I wrote a book called Sharks, The Real Story, when Jaws came out. And it wasn't the real story. I made it all up. <laughs> when did you know that you wanted to be Nelson DeMille from here on out? That's a good question. Uh, probably the, you know, the first hardcover by the Rivers of Babylon. It was a Book of the Month Club main selection. And this is very you know, heady for a young author. And it was a Reader's Digest condensed book. We remember those in those days. And to get a lot of farm, you know, uh, right sales. Then I realized that I, you know, I have to kind of come out, come out and say, I was born with a pen name. Why not use it? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so at two thousand a book, you're not going to get rich, and this is not going to be something that's going to sustain you for a long time. When did it break through? When you knew I can make a living at this? Yeah. Well, it was that first book by the Rivers of Babylon. I was doing this kind of kitchen table. And I was married and we had no children, thank God, but my wife had a good job <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I did not. But she was very indulgent and she let me do my thing. And I think we had a time period of about two years. But by the rivers of Babylon, I had a very good mentor and agent, Bernie Geis, who did Jacqueline Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls. He did a lot of William Peter Blatty before the existence. Anyway, long story short, he put it out there as an auction. In those days, it was like 12 or 13 major publishers. Now we're down to five, but... And auctioning a book is a risky thing because you might not even get the floor bid. But at the end of the day, I'll cut the story short, the high bid went to Harcourt Brace Yovanovich for $415,000. <laughs> and I'm making like 6000 a year. So. <laughs> and I said, no, say again. You know, no, he said to me, are you sitting down? I said, well, I'm sitting down. I'm talking to you. What am I doing standing? He said, well, you know, let me tell you. So and it just changed my life, obviously changed my life. I went from being a writer to an author. Right. <laughs> I'm interested, you have, um, you've done a few series with a bunch of different detectives. When do you know that you want to pick up that voice again? And how do you match the story with the detective? Do you come up with a story first and say, this would be a great story for such and such? Or do you say, I haven't done John Corey in a while. I'd love to pick him up again. That's a good question. It may be a little of both, but John Corey is the character that the readers seem to want. Because, you know, now with the internet and I have a website and people write to me through the website, you can kind of do a market survey. I like to think my standalones are good too, but reading public, my reading public wants Corey. So every once in a while, you know, I'll go back to a Corey and I don't have to say much to the publisher other than I'm gonna do another John Corey. Then I have to think about what John Corey's up to for that book. <laughs> but when you have a series, you know, you're just saying, this is what I'm doing. What I'm interested in now, because as a, as a writer, when you do a, gr a great job in the first chapter of this book, reestablishing uh, the character in their sort of natural setting, how much do you owe the reader in terms of backfill when you're writing your eighth or ninth book and you're picking up a character again? You can have editorial fights about this forever, and I do. I think the reader needs that backstory. As the series gets older, and there's more of them, you start to drag along more baggage. You can't go back every time. And I try to write them as, at the same time as a standalone, but at the same time, the fans who love John Corey, you know, want to know, they want to at least mention the case, the Plum Island case, or that type of thing, or the Panther case. Well, editors will tell you, well, you know, people haven't read all your books, and they might read them out of order. I get it, but the series has 
those challenges, and you just have to kind of go along and say, well, then, and then go back to other series that you've read and say, what did Conan Doyle do with Sherlock Holmes? So it's always an editorial author argument. Well, in The Maze, the new one just out, you do make many references to Plum Island, which was the first yeah. John Corey book, this being the eighth. And I was curious why you would be making the most references, not to the most recent, but to the one that's furthest back. Yeah, and Plum Island was the first Corey book, meant to be a standalone. It wasn't meant to be a series. I had never written a series up to that point. But Plum Island, it is a standalone. But Corey, in this book, The Maze, is now back on the North Fork of Long Island, and it's the same venue and the same cast of characters. The book starts exactly the way right. Plum Island right. started. I did that on purpose. <laughs> I think. He's, sitting on the, he's <laughs> sitting on the porch of his uncle's house right. on Long Island, enjoying the water. Right. And all of a sudden, he's sucked back into working. Right, exactly. It worked the first time, so. <laughs> so maybe it'll work again. Right, exactly. <laughs> if, you can, if you can get him once, you can get him twice. Right. So I want to talk about how John Corey has evolved from the first book to the eighth book. Specifically, how he's evolved with the ladies. But let's start how, with how he's evolved. How has he evolved as a character for you as a writer? The internal chronology of these books is maybe three or four years from Corey from beginning to where he is now in the maze. The actual chronology has been about 25 years. So that, again, is a challenge because he should not have evolved too much in four years. I don't, you know. <laughs> but Corey, so I go back and I, I kind of reread it. It was a different time, and although I created the character to be politically incorrect, uh, now I got some editorial pushback on this character and his attitude toward things, let's say women, let's say life in general. I didn't want to tone him down, and I didn't want to lose my audience, and I didn't want to lose the character, but I did at least acknowledge that the real world has changed in 25 years, although the world of the book is only four years old. How have female readers responded to your books? You have to believe me when I say this. Most of my fan mail comes from females for the John Corey books. Over 50%. Really? And, yeah, absolutely. And I'm stunned. I think mean, women do tend to sit down and write a letter to an author more than a man would. So it's not a great market survey. <laughs> but they love this character. They love this character. That's one of the reasons I go on with it. It's hard to believe that... <laughs> That women would, you know, it was mostly meant to be, you know, male characters, but they, uh, the ladies, ladies liked this guy. And they, they don't like some of the women. They don't like his wife. And it was funny how the women were down on the other women characters in the book, but they were very pro-John Corey. So it makes me feel good for my dating life. No, but I am interested, too. Do you, as a, I mean, the way that people feel about the police has changed a yeah. lot in the last 10 to 20 years. Has that changed at all, the way that you write about cops? You know, when I first started this book, it was at a time when there was a lot of anti-cop sentiment. And that was a problem. But, but by now, I think it's kind of its past. But I did get, I mean, not to you know, go on about the editorial backlash, but there were people in the publishing house who had some real problems with things that John says. And there was some you know, they said, make it a little bit more, make the language a little bit more modern. This book is, uh, uh, one of the plot angles is prostitutes. And they said, you know, can you use the word sex worker instead? I said, yeah, sure, it sounds dirty, but but no, it's cleaner, <laughs> apparently. I mean, so there's, there's a modern language. And I do co-author with my son, uh, Alex, who's 42, and sometimes he'll give me a clue, too. You reach a certain age, you want to develop with the language. You have to as an author, but neither do you want to pander. I took some suggestions. I take a couple of suggestions a book, you know. 
Well, I, I actually read about you. Nelson is not a fan of progressive editing. He likes to be finished before he gets any comments. How do you define progressive editing? Well, that's the other way of doing it. And some authors feel comfortable with that. They feel comfortable with their editor, and they'll give the editor four or five chapters. I mean, I used to do that, too, because you're looking for some feedback. I mean, the, the editor's happy to do it in most cases. But I noticed that, you know, as my plot changed or things changed in the book, and also the editor, it's not fair to the editor, the editor was reading something and the editor was saying to Margin, this is so extraneous, why are you doing this? You know, why, why? well, actually it's central to the plot, but he or she would not know that because I know it because, so I think I'm giving the editor, you know, the, the whole book at once now. And I absolutely refuse, I, I give the first three chapters so they can get the tone and all that. After that, they don't see anything until the end. And I think they're happier doing it. We've had so many editorial back and forths where we forgot even what numbered manuscript we're on. And so <laughs> it's, like, it's like a screenplay. You've seen screenplays yeah. rewritten on, on, on a set and some, sometimes you lose track of it. So I said, you know what, here's the three chapters and an outline and thank you for the check. And I said, once we do get on the mission of the outline and we'll finish, I'll finish the book and you'll see the whole book. The Maze is the eighth John Corey book. You mentioned this is the first time you've written a series. And largely that was because of reader reaction and so positive, et cetera, that people wanted you to continue the character. Do you feel in some respect a captive of the character that I have to write John Corey because, so are you, are you writing for yourself or are you writing for the commercial acceptance? Well, that's a good question too. I don't think I've really played the character out of eight books. Is that's about when you you should start thinking about this. We all know writers who are on the thirtieth uh, book in the same series, same character. At some point, I would say, you know, yeah, I'm kind of tired of him. The, the, the real challenge is the internal chronology. I mean, the world is moving on. When Agatha Christie died. The Times had a front page editorial, front page obituary, but it wasn't of Agatha Christie, it was of uh, Hercule Poirot. And they estimated his age at 117 years old <laughs> because she had written about him forever and ever. So, you know, I, the challenges get bigger and I'm kind of willing to give this character up. Although the reading public, again, they uh, they seem to like this guy. So, you know, I, you got to start fresh every time, and I have to be enthused, too. You do write with your son. You started a series with your son, starting with The Deserter. It's a great bike. I want to know how you came to the decision to write with your son and how it changes the process. And do you guys ever have to just go to your corners? <laughs> I wrote May Day, one of my first novels, with my friend Tom Block, a USAF pilot, also a magazine writer. We had been friends since we were like five years old. Uh, at the end of the book, we were not even speaking to each other. <laughs> and this is true. We were not speaking to each other after a 40-year relationship. And the funny thing is the book was successful editorially and uh, commercially. Uh, May Day was made into a TV movie, CBS Movie of the Week. So the book, we did it, but we did it at a great price. So when I signed on with Simon & Schuster some years ago, they said, we'd like you to do three books solo and three books as a co-author. And I, when I hear the word co-author, I get, you know. I, you set your teeth on <laughs> right, edge a little bit. <laughs> I think collaborator. And I think that famous sign from the French resistance, collaborators will be shot. <laughs> and I said, no, I, you know, but they, they, I said, look, you know, you can, we'll find somebody. We'll, you know, and we, we had a little contest. We found somebody that didn't work out. So I wanted to drop the whole thing. And then I. My son is a screenwriter, so I called him one night. I remember it was that night at 11 o'clock. I said, you know, I'm thinking, would you like to collaborate on a book with me? And he said, no. 
But he didn't hang up on you. They didn't hang up. Because I would have been like, no. But I mentioned the number. But all of a sudden, it was like a silence at the other end of the line. I said, okay, let's talk. <laughs> Are you a meticulous plotter, or does where your books go sometimes surprise you? Uh, yeah, the latter. I think where the books go surprise me. I'm not a big plotter unless it's like the greatest plot ever. I'm really more concerned about the characters. They say that people want to read about people, so I remember that from writing 101. And also, you know, the atmosphere of the book and the time period and everything. The plot is really, to me, secondary. It needs a plot. Sometimes the plot is important, more important than in other books. The plot shouldn't drive the book, though. The plot is, with, depending on the genre, some genres you can get away with without a lot of plot. And the, the British tend to do less plot and more characterization. I wrote a book, Gold Coast, that didn't have a huge plot. It was, you know, it was more like a Jay Gatsby, you know, a great Gatsby kind of book. And the thing sold well. So, I, you know, I proved to my editor that you can, you don't even need a plot. And <laughs> you can still sell books. Does the book always, though, end where you expected it to end when you started? Is the same person done it, in effect, the crime? Uh, yes, the butler most or whomever? of the time, but not every time. You know, um, the general's daughter was really a classic crime novel, whodunit mystery. There was a movie with uh, John Travolta, Madeline Stowe. I did not know who the murderer was. I honestly didn't know who the murderer when was. you started? But I had such a, a great thing. It was two Army criminal investigation, CID people, and the general's daughter has been murdered. I mean, it's all, everything was there. And there was the ambience of the fort and the military and all the rules and regulations that are so different than civilian life. And I was really humming along with it, but then I realized... <laughs> I didn't know who killed the general's daughter. <laughs> you just sort of forgotten about it. Yeah, until, right. I mean, you whoops, know. Uh, minor, de minor detail, minor detail. <laughs> so I won't give anything away, but you are of age. Right. You have been writing a long time. Are you driven to continue to write and continue to write and continue to write? Or could you say, Nelson, I'm happy with my body of work yeah. and I'm done? I'm happy with my body of work, and, um, you know, I, it's flattering when someone comes to you and says, can we offer you a three-book contract for this kind of money? It's very flattering. And, of course, I, every time I, I, I took it. But, right, we reached a certain age. But, you know, Joe DiMaggio knew when to quit. He quit at the very top of his game, and a lot of people know when to quit. Some, you know, writers, actors, and sports people know when to quit. Some people do not, unfortunately. And they're later body of literature or whatever they're doing is not, not as good. I'm just not at the top of my game. I still debut usually at number one, number two. Um, so to, to be quite honest, I think, you know, this is the end of my contract, the end of my writing. I say that now, but... Uh, <laughs> but but, I, but I do have a young son who I want to bring up into the, you know, into the world of... You but know, if you call, I'll take your calls. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Nelson DeVille, thank you. Thank Very you so much. much. It's good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.
Rapid Fire with Nelson DeMille. Favorite book when they were young to read to your kids? Well, you know, my kids, I uh, when they're different ages, of course, I read them um, the picture books, which were kind of interesting and boring at the same time. <laughs> the chapter books, the first ones I read to them was probably Judy Bloom, you know, and they were they were they were good. They were very good. Most influential book in your life? You know, there's maybe been two. One of them was. Um, uh, was in that was 1984, which I just gave it to my 16-year-old son to read, and he devoured it. Uh, the other one was um, Anne Rand's, um, a couple of them. Uh, Atlas Shrugged, I think, was maybe the most influential book. I was in college when I read it, and it just opened a different world to me. It hit me at the right time, at the right place, and I still, I still recommend it to people, and people still reading it. I just uh, passed a car on the highway that had a bumper sticker who was John yeah. Galt. If you hadn't been a writer, what would you have been? Well, I always wanted to be an architect. I, I love building. I love looking at buildings. I came very close to it, but then I realized there was a lot of math involved. So <laughs> <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't all compass and squares and drawing. When you are reading a book and you don't like it, do you finish it anyway or do you put it down? Uh, if it's nonfiction, I'll read it anyway. There's something in there. I'm reading it for a reason, you know, a book about the 13th century plague. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be great, but there's stuff in there. If it's a novel, no, I have no patience, zero patience. If it, you, know what, you know what, if page one wasn't good, page two is not gonna be any better, and I put them down right away. You know that quickly? Yeah, right away. Is there a highly revered book that you read that you didn't like? Several of them, I just can't think of the titles offhand. People make big things of bad books and why, I have no idea. I like Norman Mailer in general, but The Naked and the Dead, it was like, you know, everyone says, you got to read My Generation, it was World War II. And I read it and I said, you know, it's okay, but this is not this great American novel, a great American war novel. And maybe because I had been in the Army and I'd served in Vietnam, I wanted to write, write the great American war novels. I might have been more critical, but uh, even now it's considered, you know, one of the classic American one novels, and I don't, just don't find it that interesting. In five words, describe what you want the rest of your life to be. I want it to be peaceful, interesting, and I want to, I want to still be amazed about things. I want to not get jaded. It's easy to become jaded. I want to be not jaded. So, Kate, a quick observation on our discussion, our conversation with Nelson DeMille. You brought up the subject of progressive editing, and I really didn't know what you were talking about, but quickly could figure out that for most authors, I suspect they have to submit chapter by chapter of their novels, and then the editors look at them and make what changes they want to suggest. But if you get to be of the stature of Nelson DeMille, as he points out, maybe you can get around that. He certainly made it sound like an annoyance that he wanted to give them a little something and then, okay, thank you very much for your input. And now I'm going to go write what I wanted to write. I, uh, I don't know. There, I imagine editing for the big names like your Nelson DeMille's, your Stephen King's, your James Patterson's. I would imagine that it is a a complex and nuanced relationship in terms of they're a big deal. So you want to be able to honor what it is that they write and you want to be able to honor their fans too. But you know, you also don't want the book to last forever. But anyway, I'm impressed by the folks who work with those guys because they do a terrific job and it can't be necessarily an easy job all the time. But he certainly seems like progressive editing and doing his own thing is his thing. Well, it does seem to me, and this is an anecdotal observation and I don't have any research to back it up, but I think as authors tend to get more and more popular, 
that they tend to write slightly longer books, that they don't want to be edited, that they want to write what they want to write. And so you wind up with uh, Stephen King writing, uh, I would say, fulsome, long novels. John Irving just published what? Robust. 900, robust, thank you. 900 page novel. And I don't know, does an editor say, John, knock it off. Uh, We're going to stop this at page 600. Or Stephen, I'm I'm sorry, this book just doesn't hack it. It's too long. I I don't know how you (laughs) could quite say that to uh, to Stephen. Yeah, I don't think Stephen's editor calls him up and goes, Stephen, shut up. Um, Because, you know, you I, you know, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. So as much as I can read his writing, I actually have gotten to the point where I don't want him to be edited at all, just because I love everything that he thinks and writes. So, you know, for me, I'm a little bit like, let him go. Although I shudder to think if they haven't let him go yet, what let him go actually looks like, but that's okay. Well, um, and as we, as we yeah. had a little sidebar conversation with with Nelson DeMille, he said, you know, I've given him the basic outline of the first three chapters and then I throw it away. And, and I write, and and I think that's, so, so that's now what I will always have in my mind when I hear the the expression progressive editing. Well, and I'm sort of fascinated by the fact that he's not a meticulous plotter. How are you a mystery writer without meticulous plotting? How do you get halfway through the general's daughter and you don't know who did it? That's just amazing to me, and is another sort of I think. Um, I don't know, brick in the house that we're building of writer's processes. I'm just sort of fascinated by the fact that he's like, yeah, no, I don't know. I decide on the atmosphere and the characters and the basic premise, and then I go from there. That's antithetical to the way you think you would write a mystery, but he seems very confident in that process, and it certainly has served him well. Well, and it would frighten me that I'd get into the middle of it and think, oh my gosh, I don't know where I'm going, and this isn't working, and and (laughs) what am I going to do from here, but he makes it work. And as he said, each one of his novels, well over, well, around two dozen now, all still in print, all the way back to when he really began to get popular back in 1978. That's a long time to have all your novels still in print. Our bookstore this week is the Faulkner Bookstore in New Orleans, Louisiana, named obviously for William Faulkner. Faulkner is, of course, mostly associated with Mississippi. But he did do some of his writing in New Orleans, and he actually did the writing in the building which houses the Faulkner Bookstore, which is something of an institution in New Orleans, Louisiana. And so we had a chance to talk to uh, Garner Robinson, who owns the store, and uh, Joanne Seeley, who has been running it, I think, since before Faulkner was born. Uh, I I hope she wouldn't object to that. Uh, She's not that old, but she's been around the (laughs) Faulkner Bookstore for a long time. And as I say, we know people, I know people who, when they go to New Orleans, they say one of the stops they have to make is at the Faulkner Bookstore. Oh, yeah. I want to go. I'm dying to go. I would think it would be somewhat intimidating to run a bookstore that isn't just a bookstore, it's a historical institution. It would be hard, I think, to sell books in the same building in which Faulkner wrote books. But Garner seems to be taking it in stride. And I think he actually lives there, too. So talk about living a literary life. That's just awesome. And what a great life to live. So anyway, it's really fun to talk to them. They are a bookstore institution in this country, Faulkner Books. Garner Robinson is one of the owners of Faulkner House Books. And and Joanne Seeley has been there since the beginning of time. Right, Joanne? Exactly. Yeah. Millennia. (laughs) <laughs> millennia. <laughs> or 32 years. Garner, let me start with you. Faulkner House Books, you must sell more books than just William Faulkner. We do, yeah. So we have a following for our modern Southern literature. We sort of abreast of everything that's being published in English these days. Joanne reads everything that comes through the door, and especially the ones that don't come through the door, to make sure that they don't. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and that's that's kind of 
if you ever have a chance to come visit, that's kind of what we have here. It's a postage stamp of a store. And so we don't have room for a lot. And so what we have is a highly curated and usually just one or two copies of each book. I was going to say, your store has a tremendous history. Joanne, who's been there three decades and change, walk me through a little bit of the rich tradition and history of Faulkner books. Sure. The original owner of the store, Joe DeSalvo, was an attorney, born and raised in New Orleans, but he had to leave to make a living elsewhere. So when he retired from the law, and he'd always been a book collector and in particular, a Boswell and Johnson collector. He was very erudite, very well-read. He loved London bookstores. He would go whenever he could, had quite a good collection because he was a collector. And, of course, condition was everything. So he uh, still had a lot of Boswell and Johnson. But his goal was to make a bookstore that was aware of the past. But really, we really uh, encouraged many, many young writers and middle-aged writers too. Uh, we had, he was very supportive of writers and he also felt that a bookstore should be judged upon its poetry collection. Hmm. So we have a pretty phenomenal poetry collection for a little bitty store. I mean, we are really tiny. We can only have at six people in here and we are so small and we're very customer oriented. I really know my customers and I've got a pretty good bead on them and the, uh, one of the things I do when I, someone first comes in, I ask what they like to read, you know, and mm. uh, we had a, we have a subscription service that we um, Garner started during COVID, which kept us afloat, which is really good, but it takes a while. And what we would ask in the dossier before I could choose the books for people would be what they like, what they hated, and very importantly, what they didn't finish. Mm. I mm. think that's real clue as to what people like and what they don't like. What percentage would you say of your business is a collection and what percentage of your business is people who just come in browsing for books? You know, no one's a tourist town. And so we have a lot of tourists. Um, and I don't say that derogatorily, but we do see uh, not that many locals. I do have my local coterie and we order books for the locals. But um, mostly it is tourists, but mostly readers, because we've been very fortunate over the last 32 years. Uh, we've never really had to advertise because people have found us. You know, book readers are book readers, and they will seek you out, and they do, and they really do. And the other thing we have that is great in New Orleans, there are an unusual number of other little bookstores in New Orleans for this populace. Yeah. Uh, there really are. <laughs> and we each have our charms, but we have a map that we give to everybody that comes in, if they seem booky, for the other bookstores in the French Quarter. Faulkner is so well associated with the state of Mississippi. But when Joanne was going over the history of the house or the, the store, this was a house that Faulkner lived in for a time, right? Yeah, in fact, I mean, we're sitting right now in... Um, His courtyard. His courtyard. <laughs> and so, the, um, so my family and I, we live in the old resident, you know, it was a, a Creole townhouse built 1837, and it was one of the first ones built after the big fire that destroyed most of this part of the French Quarter. And so there was the townhouse, that there was a, um, a passageway that led back to this courtyard, and then there was the Garçonniere, which is just over here, the son's house. And so, you know, this was how it was in the 19th century, then at some point, I guess it was this way when Faulkner was here in the 20s. And so we have in some of Faulkner's letters, he writes to his parents about an open air kitchen and cooking on an open fire, literally 10 feet in front of where we're sitting right now. Um, <laughs> so after Faulkner was here, the next owner renovated and, you know, 
combined everything and closed in the open courtyard and made it what it is today, more or less. You are near the French Quarter, and it also says on your website that Faulkner was known to enjoy a cocktail or two and get into a bit of trouble in the French Quarter. Um, What kind of trouble? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow. Well, uh, he and uh, the fellow who lived upstairs and who actually rented him the room, um, and also Faulkner borrowed his bathroom upstairs. Uh, it was, you know, pretty plain Jane in those days. Faulkner was known to frolic a, a, along the roofs. Now, I don't know that uh, this may or may not have been proven, but, uh, you know, Sherwood Anderson was one of the reasons that Faulkner was here. Sherwood had a son, and Faulkner uh, and Spratling regularly kind of mess with the sun uh, a bit, you know, and they would they would go out and frolic on the roofs and probably drink. Who knows? But he did write some books on yes, occasion. Yes, he did. Uh, he, did two. he did occasionally write down a sentence or two. What did you like this year? What did you like this year? What- oh, I love the new Ishiguro, Claire and the Sun. Wasn't looking forward to reading that because it's seeing artificial intelligence. Not my thing, but I love that book. That was one of my favorite books. There's actually another one out now that I liked a lot because I, I tailor my selections to my customers. And one called Ashton Hall by a woman named Lauren Belfer. And it looks terribly gothic on the cover, but it's really just a good read. I mean, it satisfies me almost everybody. I have another one of my favorites, a writer from Mississippi called Odie Lindsay, and he has a terrific book, just terrific. So I've, and I've turned people onto a lot of those books, and, and they like them. That's, that's great. But I, it's just a delicate balance between what's going to work and what's not going to work. Garner, I have a problem when I read Faulkner. The name of the county that he sets so many of his books in, and I every time I would read Faulkner, I would have to stop and try to figure out how in the world do I pronounce the name of that county? What's the right pronunciation? I always say to everyone who asks these questions, it's pronounced just like it's spelled. (laughs) Thanks a lot. (laughs) And they let you get away with that. (laughs) How do you pronounce it, Joanne? I mean, he could have made the whole thing a lot simpler, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, he could have. Smith County, Johnson County. He could have made it Lafayette County, which I gather was his home county. How do you pronounce it, Joanne? Uh, Yachna Patalsa or Lafayette, you know, around here we call it Lafayette. <laughs> I see. Yeah. <laughs> That's much simpler. That's much simpler. So. I want to ask you, my last question for you, Gunnar, is, is, is it intimidating? I mean, is it intimidating to take over such a historical institution? Yes. I, Joanne's probably going to laugh. I, I, um, I have a healthy appetite for risk, I guess, is, is the, the, the bland way to say it. But, um, yeah. He buys it and then COVID happens. We moved in January of 2020. Good timing. <sighs> But we made it. But is it intimidating? You know, I mean, the simple truth is, I don't know how we could do this without Joanne. And every now and then I start to think about, you know, having to do it one day without Joanne, and then I just try to think of something else. My my last question, I suppose many people come in anticipating that they will buy a Faulkner book, which, and you must have a large section devoted to Faulkner books. Which is the largest seller, Joanne? Of, uh, well, most people buy As I Lay Dying, but if they haven't read Faulkner, I generally start people out on the short stories of Faulkner. They're much more accessible, and you might discover you like them. A lot of people have been put off because they're assigned The Sound and the Fury or Absalom when they're 16. You're not old enough, you know. So, But As I Lay Dying is probably the biggest because a lot of people had to read that in high school hmm. or a lot of people had to read it. I went back and I've read some of the things. I, I, I was shocked at As I Lay Dying. I did not see that ending coming. I missed a clue, so I had to go back, you know, 
go back and see it. So I would say As I Lay Dying, or the short stories, of course, Soldier's Pay, which he wrote here. We sell a lot of those, but now that I think about it, the biggest thing that I sell is uh, New Orleans sketches, yeah. and those were the things he wrote for the newspaper when he lived here. That's how he made a living. You know, not journalism, but a little short vignettes and observations. He has a fabulous one called The Tourist, and he just was sitting in there and looking out at the tourists that were coming through, and he compares New Orleans to a courtesan. <laughs> Joanne Seeley, Garner Robinson, a pleasure to talk to you. The Faulkner House Bookstore can be for found sure. just off Jackson Square. It's on Pirate's Alley, which of course, lends a little bit of aura of mystery to it. Good to talk right. to both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you both. A pleasure. Come see Thank us. Thank you, guys. Joanne Seeley and Garner Robinson of Faulkner Books, which I can't wait to visit next time I'm in the Big Easy. So next week is going to be Barbara Kingsolver. And if you haven't picked up a copy of Demon Copperhead, I highly suggest you do so. I think it's incredible. I think it's the best thing she's written since the Poisonwood Bible. It was illuminating, all of the things that she manages to pull off in this book. It's amazing. You should read it. Now we're going to tell you who makes the podcast. And then after that, we'll have a coda from Nelson DeMille. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we want to give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. This is good advice for everybody in this country. Put down the electronic devices, please. <laughs> read, read, read. There is nothing like it in the world. Just learn how to read, and you will have a happy life if you can lose yourself in the book. It's the best therapy 